there's kind of this like, uh, I'm not sure if it's like pastoral urban legend or, or not. I, I, I heard the story first. I remember in Bible college, very distinctly, this guy telling this story. And I thought that it was something he had done. But I've heard the story since then. And I'm like, well, was he just making it? Did, was, did he do it? Did he, was he the one who started it? Did he hear it from someone else and tried it? But it kind of went... Something like this. This preacher, whether it was him or someone else, I don't remember, but uh, preached a sermon one Sunday morning, and you know, like normal. Uh, the next Sunday, got up and actually preached the exact same sermon. And people, you know, they're a little perplexed, but you know what? You know, maybe he's had a bad week. Maybe he forgot. I don't know. You know, um, but didn't really say much. Third week in a row, he gets up and preaches the same sermon. So now people are a little bit. I don't know, annoyed, like, hey, you know, we kind of pay you to come up with new content every week, you know, like, what's the deal, three weeks in a row, and his reply was this, he said, you know, I just want you to know I'm preaching it again next Sunday, because what I decided is I'm going to keep preaching it until we start applying it, and when we start applying it, I'll move on to the next sermon, and I was like, wow, and the reason why I thought about that is because I looked at the schedule a couple weeks ago, the sermon I'm preaching, and I'm like, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. I'm like, I just preached this. And sure enough, a year ago, Advent, I preached, uh, remember Christmas spirit was our theme, and I preached Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So I'm like, and it's not as easy as you think to get a, just preach a same text. It's, it's like, I don't want to preach the same thing, but it's not like, let's come up with something new and creative, uh, because it's, it's the text, so you know, I'm not going to mess with it. Um, so I thought, well, either, either you just need to really hear this, or maybe it's me, and probably both, right? So that's where we're going to be today, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let me pray as we begin, and we'll delve back into this passage, because I'm sure you'll remember every point that I preached 13 months ago. So um, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Revealing yourself to us. Thank you for giving us all we need for life and godliness. Thank you for encouraging us through your word. Thank you, God, for correcting us through your word. God, we need a word from you this morning. We need to hear from you. So I just pray that you would take your truth through your powerful spirit and apply it to our lives. God, I have nothing to say and of my, myself, God, uh, like all of us, as we sang a few minutes ago, I am poor and I have nothing. But God, that's a great place to be because in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. So we pray that you take your word, multiply it, impact us this morning for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. This is Philippians 2, if you want to turn there, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And we'll stop there this week. Next week, Benjamin will be preaching, and I'll be picking up with the example of Christ in, in verse 5, who modeled verses 1 through 4. But we're going to stop there at verse 4 today. So one thing I, I could not resist was, um, and I did, I had people, a couple of people, you know, said, just preach the same sermon. I'm like, well, 
Um, I don't know, I'm going to tra- change some things. I, like, I got rid of the Christmas terminology because I figured that wouldn't work in February. Um, but, I, but one of the things that I decided, I, I got to keep this opening illustration because this is really good. And not really good because it was mine, but, uh, but it just fits so well. And as I was getting ready to delete it, I'm just looking at the quote, and I'm like, I, this just fits. So um, it, it's not World War II. Don't worry about that. Do I not have a back screen there? Um, no. Okay. I got this screen. So I did. I used this a year, and Trey is very happy. He's an Avengers. So, um, so for those of you who aren't Avengers fans, and I'm sure there's many, um, it's a, there's a series of movies, and they all connect. And this one is about, I don't know, middle of the path, middle, midway, Trey, maybe-ish. Uh, Civil War, okay? And it's exactly what it is. You had all the good guys, all the guys who have fought together for and, um, and, and, and have waged you know, epic battles together side by side, they end up turning on one another and literally fighting one another. And there's one particularly uh, significant scene where like, you think they're gonna, there's a couple of them, you're gonna, they're going to kill each other. I mean, that's how intense this, this had gotten. And the thing of it is, is, here's the deal, this whole getting them to turn against one another, that was the plot of one uh, single man, um, his name was Zemo, and he had a beef with the, the Avengers, and, and Zemo wanted to try to take them down, so his plan was to get them to turn against one another. And, and he makes this quote, he makes this statement, uh, he says, an empire toppled by its enemies can rise again. But one that crumbles from within, that is dead forever. And this guy he's conversing with, he makes this statement to Zemo. He says, you wanted to see them rip each other apart. And Zemo replies, I knew that I couldn't kill them. More powerful men than me have tried. But if I could get them to kill each other, it just kind of trails off. See, there was a unity concern in, in Philippi. Several passages in, in, in Philippians that speak of uh, division, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Philippians 4.2, fast forward to the end, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And these are just a sampling uh, of the passages. Uh, you see it in 127 and 2.2, 2.3 and 4, where we are today, 2.14. Um, there was a unity problem. Now, here's the deal. The, the issue in Philippi was unlike the issue in, in Corinth. They didn't have schism-level issue in, in Philippi like they did in Corinth. Corinth was, was dealing with some deep-seated issues, and, and it, was, it was very much schism in that church. Not so much in, in, in Philippi. The, the issue more in Philippi was, was bickering and selfishness and, and, and posturing and complaining and, and arguing. Okay? It wasn't the big things, and that's an important nuance. And really, when you think about it, generally speaking, when we have issues and tension, if we're really objectively and honestly step back and look at it, we're like, you know what? This, this really isn't uh, it, as big of an issue as I'm making it. In, in fact, my experience has been over the past 20-something years is that when we've had uh, disagreements over doctrine, like the, the quote-unquote big things, those conversations... And separations tend to be um, really tame, good, meaningful conversations, arriving at points where it's like, you know, it's just, maybe it's just better that, you know, I go, we go go our separate ways. And and those have been really beneficial, but when it's really been like cat fight and, 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 
and, and, and ugly. It's, it's been over silly things. It's been bickering. It's been an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to see things from someone else's perspective, an unwillingness to truly try to understand. It's been nitpicky things, things that certainly do not belong in the sphere of the fundamentals of the faith. I believe this is one of Satan's greatest weapons against the people of God. He knows Just like Zemo knew he couldn't beat the Avengers, right? Satan knows he cannot beat the church in a street fight. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He knows that he can't beat this. So he attempts to destroy it from within, right? Our greatest threat, you've heard us say this a hundred times, our greatest threat is not same-sex marriage or, or gender dysphoria or atheists, Our greatest threat is selfishness and petty arguments and unkind words from within. And Satan knows this. There's an overwhelming amount of ink outside of Philippians that's spilled right throughout the New Testament on the one another's, on unity, on bitterness, on interpersonal conflict. And I believe it's because God knows that these things are the biggest threat to the church accomplishing its mission in the world. I came across this quote uh, this week from uh, a man named Thomas More um, in, in, in regard to this. Uh, he, start, he writes this, Selfish gain and personable, personal ambition drive Christ followers today. More platforms for self-promotion are available at the click of a finger than ever before. People can peddle their thoughts like cheap wares on social media, blogs, websites, chat rooms, and YouTube. While we may use these tools to maintain contact with distant relatives and old friends, they are sometimes used to fuel mob mentality and social disruption. Often the byproduct of our communication tools is a sad mix of disconnection, competition, and ambition. Even within the body of Christ, ambition rears its ugly head. How often do loud voices become lobbyists for their niche ministry, trading the big ministry of the local church for their pet project? The passage exposes selfish gain and calls for putting others first to sustain strong bonds as Christ's followers. Right? So selfish gain and personal ambition has always been an issue in the church. But more is, is a, what he's pointing out is, is important. Like We don't have to wait till Sunday morning or to the church business meeting to fight anymore. <laughs> I can fight with you tomorrow night on Facebook. I can be uncharitable to you tomorrow on Facebook. And you can, you can be uncharitable back in your reply. And, and, and so it, it, spills, it spills over. And he's issuing a, a warning. Like, we need to be careful. In our interactions with one another. And sometimes when it's behind a screen, it, it's, it seems somewhat easier or we're disconnected. So we're willing to fire missiles via Facebook or Instagram or wherever that maybe we're not willing to fire here. But the warning is still the same. We better watch ourselves. Stop the stupid bickerings and backs and forths on Facebook. And if you can't handle it, get off of it. Just Stop. Because then not only is it just like here in the front of the auditorium, you know, me and Scott, and there's like 50 of you who see it, but hey, let's just put it out there for everyone in the world to see it too. And Paul's like, this is what destroys. This is what's destructive. This is what affects our testimony in the world. Here's a little bit of context. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, um, but just so we can orient towards our passage here in, in the bigger context of Philippians. Uh, remember back in 1, uh, verses uh, 9 through 11, Paul, uh, Jeff preached on this a little bit ago. Uh, Paul prays that their love will increase. 
Okay, that's, that's significant and important because the issue wasn't that there wasn't love here. These people loved one another. Love is already present. The concern is that the outward pressures, the small bickering, selfishness, etc., uh, will erode it. Tom Schreiner in his commentary wrote, not exactly sure what this was, but it could be political or religious. I know neither one of those things would cause bickering today, right? But, yeah. The concern was that the love would be eroded by outside pressure. It happens. Right? Paul's rabbit trail, I think this is significant. In Philippians 1, 12-26, about his imprisonment. He has this, what seems like a little rabbit, he's telling a story about his imprisonment. But he makes these great statements in there about, it doesn't matter what happens to me. What matters most is is that the gospel is going forth. What matters most is whether through my life or my death, Christ will be glorified. And I think what that does is it gives us insight into the heart of Paul. And so that everything that we read about unity and about the one another's throughout Philippians, never else for Paul for that matter, but is informed by this. This is what is central to all of it. And in just a few minutes, we'll unpack this. When Paul says, be of one mind, this is it. Paul shows us his heart. What mattered most to Paul was the gospel. What mattered most to Paul was the glory of God. And that better be what matters most to us. Not my opinions, not my agendas, but what matters most. Not what I want, not my way, but the glory of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we rally around. That's what matters most. And if that means I put myself second, if that means I defer to you or something that you feel strongly about as long as obviously it's within biblical bounds, then I should do that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of unity, for the sake of the glory of Christ. But the problem is too often I'm too selfish or stubborn to be willing to release and let go and defer to one of you because I'm too big of a jerk. I care more about what I think and feel than what you care or than what you think or feel. So this informs everything Paul says now. The gospel matters most, okay? Part of the context. And then Jeff talked about this um, last week. Christians are called to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is, this is the central command in the whole book of Philippians. Jeff talked about last week. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, okay? Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then you have the, tra- the, the kind of the... Uh, the, the, the Transfer statement there then at the beginning of chapter 2, therefore, so, in the ESV. Paul is concerned that the followers of Jesus Christ live worthy of the gospel, representing it well in this world, and he communicates to them in no uncertain terms that the primary way, gets this, the primary way that the gospel is manifest in the world and Jesus is glorified, it's accomplished through standing together in Christian unity. It's significant, isn't it, that after the command, so, you know, walk worthy, well, how do I work worthy? Well, yes, avoid, and, we, and we'd put our list of big sins out there, right? Don't steal, don't kill, you know, homosexuality, this, this, and this, all, obviously all important, all wrong. But, you know, that's where, I, if I'm writing Philippians, I have to like, walk worthy, and I'm like, yes, beware of the big sins. Isn't it significant that right after he says, walk worthy, what he talks about is unity and humility, and being like-minded, this is where he goes. He starts small. But it's not really small, is it? Unity, love, the one another's, these are the most difficult things to live out. I would suggest that these are the most common sins 
that we struggle with. And not only are they the most common sins that we struggle with, but they're also the most deadly sins that we struggle with. Our attitudes and inner thoughts towards one another, the things that you think about towards a brother or sister in Christ as you're going about your day, that's where the major battles are fought and where both major victories and defeats are scored. And again, this is in keeping with the overwhelming emphasis on unity and love throughout the New Testament. The bitterness, the unforgiveness, the bad attitude you harbor against a brother or sister, that's what will bring us down. Not the atheist. Paul writes to unify the congregation in the spread of the gospel. He knows that resolve and unity in the face of opposition, which is what he tells us to do there in chapter 1, the only, reason, the only way we'll be able to face down the opposition and defeat the enemy is through unity. When we fight against each other rather than with each other, our unity is lost and we do not fulfill our mission. Do you get that? When we fight against each other instead of with each other, we do not accomplish our mission in the world. The standing firm of chapter 1, verse 27, the central command of Philippians, is only possible through Christian unity. So, how does this accomplish? Well, I need to understand some things. First of all, the privileges and blessings I have received compel and enable me to pursue unity. So we have this here in chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, if, right? He has all these if statements. Now, this is important to note. The if statements here are not conditional. He's not saying, oh, you might have received this from God. No, he's saying, if you're a Christian, you, you have this. These are definitive statements about what you have. You could substitute the word since in there. Since you have any uh, encouragement from Christ, since you have comfort from love, and so on. And this isn't really foreign to us, right? If I were to say to you, um, you know, if you live in the United States of America, if you benefit from the freedoms that we have, if you benefit from the economic blessings that we have in this culture, then you need to vote, right? If I were to make a statement like that, right? I'm not saying, well, you might live here. No, it's understood, right? I'm saying if, if, if you benefit from all this, and you do, then you have a responsibility, right? I'm making a definitive statement about your reality and using it in such a way to make you realize your responsibility in order to challenge you to respond appropriately. That's what Paul's doing. If you've received anything good from God, and you have, then it better be reflected in the way you interact with one another. And here's the thing, too. The ifs here... These manifestations of grace that have been given to us, they're, kinda, they're deliberately compressed and, and vague. Um, you know, I remember, you're going to be frustrated as I was. I'm trying to figure out, like, what's the rational progression here? And there really isn't one. Uh, Philippians is a very emotional letter, and I think that's, this is part of it, too. Uh, th- this, this is an emotional appeal, and it's more that than it is even rational argument. Paul's just saying, like, it, I mean, this is impassioned pleading. Like, if you've received this, you have, like, respond. Respond. So what are, the, what are the things that we've been given? We don't take a lot of time to unpack these, but encouragement uh, in Christ. We've received con- comfort from him, consolation from being united with him. Do you receive any comfort from love? This is the, the love that we have from God. 
if you've received comfort from love, if you've received the love uh, that comes from God, then you better show it to others. Any participation in the Spirit, this is a big one. If you've received any participation in the Spirit, and, and you have, right, this is the source of our unity. Um, the shared spirits, the common possession of the Spirit. What we have in common in the Spirit is greater than what attempts to divide us. We have the Holy Spirit of God, every single one of us. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. There's one Spirit, there's one body. Like we share the Spirit. So it's crazy and it's sinful and it's a front to the Spirit. An affront to the Spirit. And Paul says this right in Ephesians. He says, we quench the Spirit when we don't interact the right way. Because we claim a shared experience with Him. I can't live in antithesis with that shared unity in, in the spirits. The common sharing of the Spirit has huge implications. We're part of the same gang. <laughs> you know how gangs work, right? Once you make that pledge to a gang, you're all in and you do nothing to violate that. And this is even more significant. If I were to tell you that uh, my Twitter feed this morning, that I got a tweet, Rusty, and you know what it said? It said Jim Harbaugh has left Michigan to become an assistant coach at Ohio State. So you're all laughing. Like, like why? Like, oh, he's stupid. Why would he, he wouldn't do that. I know he wouldn't do that. I'd be like, why? Why did he, right? You don't do that, Right? You don't, he wouldn't soil himself. This is what you're thinking, not what I think, you know. With a, that scarlet and gray. He's a Michigan man. Michigan quarterback, Michigan, right? You're right. Like people said that, you know, there was talk about who Ohio, uh, Michigan would hire if Harbaugh left. And some people were like, we'd love to have Luke Fickle. Most people were like, he's not going there. He's an Ohio boy. He, you know, write that one off the list. Why? Because, because we know what he belongs to. It's incongruous for us to say, I belong to the spirits. And then live with disunity towards my brother because that is a complete antithesis. Even further apart than Ohio State, Michigan. You can't do that. If you have any affection and sympathy, right? Again, you have. Our lives have been touched by these things from God. Therefore, they should be manifest from us. If you have God the Spirit, Jesus, then you should have these. I actually love this. In the original Greek, it says, if you have any intestines. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like any inner innards. I'm like, well, what does that mean? It must mean all of us, because we all have innards, right? I'm not a biological guy, but I think it's a... That doesn't sound right. I am a biological guy. <laughs> I'm not a biology guy. That's what I meant to say. Uh, but I think we all have innards. And um, like, what is that? Where does that come from? Well, Paul's saying it. Well, actually, you get a hint in, in Colossians where Paul says, be, be clothed with bowels of mercy. See, for us, we would say our, our hearts, like, um, I ought to care for you out of the depths of my heart. Um, for them, their, their terminology was bowels. That's, that's where, the, that was the, where the deepest emotions are felt. You've had that from God. You need to show that depth of mercy and love, compassion, sympathy towards one another. Paul adds one other deeply personal motive 
It's interesting, right? You'd think uh, the four previous realities that he's given us would be sufficient grounds for, for unity, but Paul interjects one more appeal, and it's this. Make my joy complete by being unified. Why does he add that? Make, it, seem, it seems kind of too personal. This is why. The great apostle finds joy in unity. He finds joy in seeing the gospel proclaimed by a unified church. He felt like this. This is from Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Behold how good it is. We dwell in unity. That's what Paul is feeling there. Parents, you understand this, right? But doesn't it, when your kids are like, loving each other and doing things for each other without you telling them to be nice to each other. Like as a parent, aren't you like, oh, so, so happy. And when they're like going at each other, like you hate it. Like why can't you guys just get along? I mean, we felt like a, a, few weeks, a couple weeks back, Carissa had called. She wanted to talk. She FaceTimes us a couple times a week. And, and Kathy and I, I don't remember what we were doing now, but uh, we're like, okay, yeah, talk to your siblings first and then we'll get on with you. And well, we kind of got lost in what we were doing, and we realized, we went and we found him. It was an hour later. She had been FaceTiming with Hannah and Megan for an hour. And Kathy and I were like, oh, it's so cute. I like the siblings, you know? Like, it just makes you feel good as a parent. And Paul, in a way, was experiencing this. He's like, oh, it's like when my kids, that's how Paul saw them. Like, Man, when you all get along... It's, it, it makes my joy complete. His primary purpose in life remembers the advancement of the gospel. He desires that they be part of the mission. He wants to see them in unity so that they can accomplish that. He knows that it's best. And that's why he wants them to stop bickering and be united. So how does this happen? I must pursue right attitudes and ways of thinking. To achieve Christian unity. So be like-minded. This term in, in one way or another appears some ten times, about ten times in the book of Philippians. Ten times. It's a significant amount of repetition in a book the size of Philippians. And what he's saying is to not to think the same way as if we're all supposed to be like little ditto machines, little copies of one another. He's not squelching creativity or different perspectives or diversity. What he's saying is to seek the same goal with a like mind, that the main thing would be the main thing to all of us. It's a disposition and intent that prioritizes the gospel and the mission of the church above personal preference and agenda, right? What we've been stating all along. So we can have different opinions, but what we care most about is the gospel. I came across this this past summer. I was in a, in a board meeting over at school. And, and, and we were making some decisions, and it was me and one other guy, probably the guy who I probably had the closest friendship with on the board, and the two of us, and we were on diametrically opposed views on something. And, and we were going at each other. Matter of fact, one of the, one after the meeting, one of the guys said, that was awesome. I'm like, 
And they're like, no, like watching you guys, like you're going back and forth and like, you know, lobbing scripture bombs at each other, and, you know. And, and, um, but I tell you, we came together, we made a decision, and, it, and one of us, it didn't go the way that one of us wanted it to go. But we walked out of that meeting, and we hugged and we're like, okay, we're good. Because what matters most is that we move ahead, and we're on the same team right now. We're on the same team moving ahead. And, and we're good. And again, I don't always do that. But, but I thought about that. I'm like, that's, that's what it is. It, at the end of the day, it's my ability to agree on what matters most. That's what Paul's calling us to. Have the same love. Again, this is referring back to God's love. Have the same love. It's the same love that God has had towards us. Okay, and we see this again all over Scripture, right? We love because he first loved us. In John 13, Jesus tells his disciples, love as I have loved you. Having the same love. That means I have to have the same love towards you that God and Jesus have had towards me. And there's no conditions attached to that. Love those in the church who view everything the same as you. The other ones, you don't have to love them quite so much. The ones who disagree with you about COVID, you don't have to love them quite so much. The ones who don't agree with you about the certain programming or what we should be studying or whatever. No. If, if God loved me when I was his enemy and I'm commanded to love like he's loved me, I better love those who disagree with me and vice versa. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Again, what you're finding here in Philippians 2 is this is what we said a minute ago. It's, it's not... It's logical. It's logical. I don't mean that in a negative way, but there's a lot of repetitiveness, and I think it's just because Paul is just stating these things with, with different perspectives and intensity, and he says it again, be in full accord and of one mind. This literally means be one-souled. Gordon Fee says it means striving together with one mind towards a single goal. Karl Barth writes this, Divisions can be overcome only by taking on a common yoke and pulling together in the same direction. When believers are preoccupied with their personal agenda, they will pull in different directions and split the church with separate interest groups. By focusing on egocentric priorities, they will be disunited. We pull the same way. And here's the thing I found over the years. It's when we make the, the main thing the main thing and when we pull together for the gospel, oftentimes a lot of these things kind of just fade away. Do you, do you know that some of the, most, the healthiest churches in America are churches that are actively replanting other churches? It, it seems to be counterintuitive because you're sending like half of your, your congregation away and sometimes it's your brightest and best to go start another church. But you know why those churches are so healthy? It's because they're outward focused. And, and when you're outward focused and engaging in gospel ministry and the battles that go along, you don't have time to argue about stupid stuff. Because there's something bigger and deeper. I grew up, uh, I grew up a Boston Celtics fan, but a close second to the Celtics was uh, the San Antonio Spurs. Partly because when I was a kid, and you know, those of you who are around my age, remember there's a guy named David Robinson. 
And he played for the San Antonio Spurs, uh, Hall of Famer, All-Star, uh, NBA championships, and, uh, and a strong uh, born-again follower of Jesus Christ. So that kind of, I liked the Spurs when I was a kid and kind of followed him. Tim Duncan came in and, and kind of, I don't know if Tim uh, was, a, was a believer or not, but he, he modeled a lot of the same things David Robinson did as far as humility and hard work and, and things like that. And um, there's a group of, of, that came together for several years with the Spurs. They called them the Big Three. And after Robinson retired, it was Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, and um, Tony Parker. Tony Parker was their, their, uh, their point guard. And I believe he pay, played 17 seasons with them. I think he won three uh, NBA championships and, uh, uh, again, a Hall of Famer. And, and a few years back, Tony Parker uh, retired, and he wrote this open letter talking about his time with the Spurs and thanking the city of San Antonio. And this is what he writes. I kind of just, this is part of it. He starts by talking about his coach, Greg Popovich. He called him Pop. They all call him Pop. He says, man, you're always getting the same pop, operating on the same principle every time. And that principle is this. Anything that happens on his watch, it happens for one reason and one reason alone, the good of the San Antonio Spurs. How can you not respect that? And the truth is, before long, you don't just respect it, you also learn from it. I think this is why you see the Spurs as an organization just being so good at juggling a lot of these big names. A lot of these great star players all at the same time. Because whoever the guy is, it doesn't matter. The question never changes. It's always that same Popovich question, what will happen here so that it is for the good of the Spurs? So if Timmy, Tim Duncan, is dominating the 03 finals, then Manu and I, we've got smiles on our faces. And if Manu and that floppy hair of his is dominating the 05 finals, then Timmy and I, we've got smiles on our faces. And if things are going my way in the 07 finals and I'm getting in a bit of a zone there, then Manu and Timmy, you know, you can bet that they've got big smiles on their faces too. And then, even if it's none of us, you know, if it's none of the original big three and now all of a sudden it's the young gun, Kawhi Leonard, dominating in the 14 finals. Man, Timmy and Manu and I, you've never seen such smiles as the ones we had on when we were lifting that trophy with him. All we wanted in the end was to win titles together. That's all that mattered. It was Pop's way, which meant it was our way, which meant it was the Spurs' way. The last Pop decision of my Spurs career, I'll say, I think it's very telling because it was like the shoe is now on the other foot. This time it was DeJounte who was playing my role as the young Spurs point who was going to get some news. And then it was almost like for this one, I was going to be the Pop figure leading the conversation now. So I came up to Pop one day and I told him my thoughts. It's time. It's time for DeJounte to take over full-time as our starting point guard. I didn't want it to be a big dramatic thing or this ego thing or one of these big media things, but I just wanted to get it out in the open. For the good of DeJounte's development and for the good of the Spurs, Pop agreed and he thanked me. And then I went and I had the same conversation with DeJounte and he was grateful. Was it bittersweet? You know what? I'm not trying to seem like a robot here or anything, but it really wasn't. It's a discipline thing, I think. It's just kind of the way that I was raised and how I've grown up as a player, to always stay moving forward. And so that's how I tried to keep that moment. I wanted DeJounte to know that he'd earned it, but also that what the decision came down to, in the end, was the exact same thing that would always come down to during his time in San Antonio, the good of the San Antonio Spurs. He was a first ballot Hall of Famer, multiple All-Stars, multiple uh, World Championships, as an NBA player who not always known for their extreme humility, able to come and say, hey, put me on the bench. It's this guy's time. It's not about me. It's about this team 
And it's about his development. I, that, that stood out to me too. It's about DeJounte. I want him to develop. I think the church of Jesus Christ could learn a lesson from Tony Parker. That we look at each other and say, it's not about me. It's not about what I always want. It's not about my agenda or my plan. What's best for the gospel? What's best for my brother? What's best for my sister? And let me step into the background so that they can shine. Let me step in the background and serve them. Let me help meet their needs. Again, the point of all of this is a gospel-first mentality. It's significant to point out here, too, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Paul isn't saying that nothing matters and everyone should just get all along all, all the time no matter what they think, right? Paul certainly at times said there, there are lines to divide over. The book of Galatians, Galatians starts, he doesn't even start with a nice greeting. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? You know, <laughs> so Paul indicates there are times to drop the gloves, but, but, but those things are a lot smaller than what we often make them out to be. That circle of things that we should drop the gloves over is a lot smaller than we make it out to be sometimes. Here's here's an example of Paul's wisdom in this. In in Galatians, the the Judaizers, they were demanding that Paul circumcise Titus. Right? Because they were saying, you have to live out aspects of the law in in order uh, to truly be a Christian. And Paul fought this. This is the whole point of the book of Galatians. Paul, no way. This is what he dropped the gloves. This is why he called them foolish. You're adding to the gospel. I will not circumcise Titus. No way. And yet in Acts chapter 16, he goes on a missionary journey to Jerusalem. And he tells Timothy, Timothy, before we go in there, you need to be circumcised. But you wouldn't. But now you're like, wait, Titus, Timothy, I I refuse. But now I'm, is Paul confused? Is he wishy-washy? No, oh, Paul just had a wisdom that oftentimes we really exhibit. For Paul, it was about the gospel. In Galatia, they had already accepted the gospel and were now going back to anti-gospel ways of thinking. Paul saw this as weak and as a compromise to the gospel. Jerusalem was a different animal. There he was still fighting to see the gospel embraced, so he deferred. Because the gospel mattered most. And he employs an incredible wisdom there, and a wisdom that we can learn from. Like, this is not worth fighting for. This is. This is for the sake of the gospel. This isn't. I'm not going to make a big deal about this. I'm going to make a big deal about that. That's what Paul demonstrates, all of this, in that, in that, that circumcision example. Lastly, as we finish up, then, you know, how, again, how do I do this? How do I pursue unity? I, I must lose myself and put others first to achieve unity. So you have this this list of of commands here now. Humility is at the core of all of it. Humility is the key to Christian unity. Moises Silva in his commentary writes, The true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. Shifting attention away from ourselves becomes the challenge. Isn't that true? Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry. Nothing from selfish ambition. This is at the heart of the fallen human condition. We tend to see everything through the lens of ourselves. 
We tend to see everything through the lens of ourselves. Self-interest often trumps what is best for others. We see this in just a few verses in verse 21 uh, in this chapter in Philippians where Paul has to say they all seek their own interest. Everyone seeks their own interest. By the way, the rivalry, this word rivalry that Paul's saying, I'm seeing in the church, and he's warning us about, he's already introduced us to the word rivalry in the book of Philippians. This is back in that, that rabbit trail where he says, some of my enemies preach Christ out of rivalry. They don't like me. They're trying to make life difficult for me. You know, when the people in Philippi read that, they're like, yeah, those scumbags who are doing that for you, Paul, out of rivalry. But now he's like, eh, <laughs> not anything out of rivalry. That same thing that they have, you have it too. You can have those same tendencies. Right? Do nothing from vain conceit, empty glory. This is cheap, vain pride. And Paul uses this terminology in other letters. He expresses similar concerns in 1 Corinthians 10, where he's talking to his blatantly most schismatic church in Corinth. In the conversation about Christian liberty, he says, let no one seek their own good but that of others. Let no one seek their own good but that of others. 1 Corinthians 13.5, again, written not in the context of a wedding, but in the context of one of the most divided churches in history. Love does not seek its own So the deal here is not to do things to advance my own purposes and my own glory. And this sin shows up in me being more concerned about me making my point than about deferring and showing love. We're upset when people don't think like us. We're upset when we don't have the opportunity to get in the last word. It shows up when I have to prove my point, when I have to get credit for a good idea. It shows up when I'm jealous because you got something that I wanted and I, and I wish I had it. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little annoyed or you got recognition that I, whatever it is, it's so subtle and it's deadly and we have it. And I have it. Be humble. Like I said, humility stands at the the root of all of this. And just like today, humility then was a negative term culturally. It's associated with weakness. But it is a positive characteristic for the disciple of Christ. It represents moral strength in Scripture. And if anyone thinks that being humble and meek is a weak thing, Jesus Christ would like to have a word. He made himself nothing. And we said a reference, Tim Duncan a minute ago, Tony Parker in that same letter, he said, the thing that made him one of the greatest players of all time is that he was the humblest NBA player that there was, the most coachable that there was. He said that's what made him a star. Here's one of the star NBA players, and he is more coachable than anyone else in the NBA. It's humility. Count others better than yourself. Others are better than me. The cure for bickering, grumbling, selfish ambition, vain conceit, it's to put the health and well-being of the community before my own, to care more about other people's perspectives, to care to seek to understand instead of trying to get my own point across. Right? How many times do we do that? How many times when we're bickering about COVID did we sit down with someone who had a diametrically opposed view to us and not sit down with them to try to get them to buy into my point, but to sit down and just honestly ask questions and honestly listen to seek to understand. Just to seek to understand. We're not good at that. Whatever the thing is, can I just sit down with a brother and seek to understand and ask questions and then just walk away and process it instead of fighting back and trying to get them to see my points, right? Don't just look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word looking here is important. It means be aware, 
be attentive. Looking implies awareness. In our house, you know, probably much like, like we'll see something laying on the floor. Sorry, guys, I'm going to tell you what we do sometimes. You know, there'll be something that one of the kids left on the floor. And, you know, Kathy and I will be like, let's just leave it there and see how long it takes. And, like, after three days, you know, and you ask your kids, you're like, did, did nobody want to pick that up? Like, oh, I, just, I didn't see it, Dad. I didn't notice it. You know, we're like, what do we always say? Have big they're like, you're picking on us. Have big eyes. We say that in our house all the time. Have big eyes. Like, look, see, notice. Like, come here on a Sunday morning and notice so-and-so's not here or so-and-so seems down. Or I know so-and-so is going through this. I want to have big eyes. I'm going to seek them. I'm going to seek out them. I'm going to seek to be aware of other people's needs. And I'm going to look out for their interests, not just my own. This is how we imitate Jesus so what are we going to do? This is deadly. And I have it and you have it. It's here. But it doesn't have to defeat us, right? It was in Philippi. Throughout the New Testament, the, the instructions are given because there's a way out. The question is, are you going to pursue that way out? Who do you need to talk to? What relationships do you need to repair who do you need to apologize to and say, I, I, I was, I've been putting my own agendas ahead of yours? Who do you need to be more sensitive to? How this week are you going to consider others better than yourself? I've always been struck with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'll end with this, and I don't see. Oh, there he is. Griffin, you can come on up. I've always been struck by, um, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As things were heating up in Germany and he was part of his resistance, he actually came to the United States. He was brought here. And um, he had a sweet gig. Teaching, doing these things, making money, safe. And he decided to go back to Germany and people were like, you're nuts. You're crazy. Why would you go back? They're hunting you there. They want to kill you. And he said, you know what, I, I know that. But he said, here's the thing, this war is going to end. And Germany is going to need to be rebuilt. And the church has suffered. And the church is going to need to be rebuilt. And if I'm going to have any part in that and any credibility at all, I need to go back and I need to suffer with them. And we know how that ended for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was, in fact, killed by the Nazis. But it's that attitude of one another. So God, help us to have that. Help us to consider others better than ourselves and pursue Christian unity for the glory of God and the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.